before this, of a, kind of a rare experience for me, and that was of being a minority. I know it doesn't, many, for many of you, that's not a rare experience, but for me it was somewhat of a rare experience. I went to a vineyard conference, and in the vineyard conference, uh, they have started through its, the Vineyard USA, through its recent reorganization, has set up four different associations. The Association of Black Pastors and Leaders, Association of Hispanic Pastors and Leaders, Asian Pastors and Leaders, and Women, Female Pastors and Leaders. And so they put this together. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. And you might ask yourself, you know, why do they need to do that? And, pa and Jay Pathak, who is the director of all of Vineyard USA, he's uh, the national director, he was there, he spoke, and he made it clear that this was one of the things that excited him about becoming the new leader of the Vineyard. He just came on about a year and a half ago. Um, and he, he the, the, what excited him was the hope of us coming, becoming a truly diverse movement. You know, when you think about the vineyard and the history of the vineyard, um, it kind of started as a white hippie movement in the 70s. You know, that's kind of where it started, and that was good for a time. But he, he spoke to us and emphasized so clearly that we're meant to be a colorful movement. We're meant to be a multicultural movement, and that's, what, um, that's the kingdom of God, and that's what we're meant to be. And so we come from different cultures, and we, but we come to Jesus, and we come to the church, and this needs to be a place that is cross-cultural, that, that meets all of us, brings all of us together, and is a foretaste of the kingdom. And of course, as a church, we haven't always been good at that, right, often. Um, and so he is is really saying to us as our as kind of the leader of this movement that without doing something intentional we will continue to be centered as the white hippie movement that we kind of started out being and so his his focus in creating these associations is to take people groups that have typically been are more on the periphery and to center them and to start to give them some support and really talk through issues of being a truly multicultural movement so it was very exciting one of the things he said to us um, which I think I have up on the screen the mission of God and revival must come through diverse expressions in the local church the church must lead the way and so I love that this is coming from our national down to us they're all uh, talking about this it's it's central he said this is not a peripheral thing to the movement this is central to who we are as a movement so um, this was the meeting of the vineyard black pastors and leaders and so you might ask yourself, well, what were you doing there, Beth? <laughs> Which is a very good question. Um, but they thankfully invited uh, non-black leaders to come to this, um, uh, to this conference if we lead people of color in our congregations or in our ministries and want to learn, want to become, uh, have gain more insight and understanding of what that looks like and how to do that well and healthily. So I got the privilege of going. I went with Joy and Relisa. Um, I felt very privileged to be there. I felt like I was in a holy space, really, uh, that I was listening in on a conversation that, you know, I don't ordinarily get to listen in on. And there was such joy in bringing these brothers and sisters together who have never, this was the first ever of this kind of a meeting for the vineyard, and there was so much joy in this place. So I just want to thank you as a church for allowing me to go to something like that, uh, to the leadership of this church for encouraging me to do it. It was so, so, um, so enlightening, and I'm going to be sharing a few things that I learned about it uh, as I go through this message, but it's interesting that today we're on John 4, and John 4 is all about 
crossing social and cultural divides. That's what John 4 is about because Jesus does it and he's showing us the way. So we're going to read today from John 4. If you have the handouts, they're back there. I also have little tiny, 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 you have to have good eyes, little books of John back there. Take a couple with you, hand them out to people. Um, They're kind of cool because they don't put the verse numbers in there, so you can just read it like a story. So it's kind of a cool little book, so feel free to take one of those out of the basket as well. Um, But let's start reading from John 4, verses 1 to 30. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, You know the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? She clearly has no idea. Okay, we're just going to go with this. I'm fine with that. Um, okay, where was I? So, all right, she says, uh, are you greater than, my, my, than our father? Okay, then Jesus answered her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. How interesting that Jen read the scripture, come all you who are thirsty. Come. Just God knew what's going on here today. Um, The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And he told her, Go call your husband and come back. She said, I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks." God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman 
But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? And then leaving the water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and made their way toward him. Amen, amen, amen. We see it in this passage, and we're going to see it over and over again as we see the life of Jesus, that Jesus always moves toward the unexpected. He moves toward the lowly, the forgotten, the oppressed, the marginalized. He consistently crosses social and cultural barriers, and he's doing it in this passage. We see it when he's healing, healing paralytics or the demon-possessed, befriending women, putting Samaritans in a good light. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan? The only good guy in that story is a Samaritan. Again, this people that they don't get along with. Um, he does this, and now here he is going to Samaria and having this conversation with a Samaritan woman. And there's some significance to the fact that he's in Samaria. So I want to talk about that today uh, in three different ways. The first thing I want to say this is that in going to Samaria, Jesus moves toward more obscurity personally, but more significance theologically. Let me say that again. He moves to more obscurity personally, but more significance theologically. What do I mean by that? If you go to the beginning of that passage, he says that, that when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples, so he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. This is crazy to me. Jesus hears he's getting more popular, so he leaves. This is not what I do. When I think I'm getting more popular, I go forward for more of that, right? I mean, I want more praise. I want more people to like me. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't anyone? But Jesus doesn't. Instead, he's not interested in getting into a competition with John the Baptist to see who has more followers or who can baptize more, who has more you know, followers on his Instagram account. He doesn't want any of that. He doesn't even care if he's being liked by the Pharisees and the powerful people of the day. Again, I'd be wanting to see, yeah, people in Greensboro want to know me. I want them to know me, right? No, he doesn't want any of that. He's like, I'm walking away from that. So he's moving away from from that popularity and moving toward more obscurity personally by going to Galilee because his time wasn't come. He didn't want that yet. But what's interesting is that in moving away from his personal popularity, he moves toward a very significant place theologically, very significant. Where he ends up in the story is very notable, that he ends up in Samaria. And we can only see this after the fact. Remember, we're studying the book of John, and this is the only book that has this story in it. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the other Gospels, don't include this story. And this is very typical of John, because remember what John is doing. He's writing many years later. He was an eyewitness to the events, but he's writing many years later. So he has the perspective of years of seeing what this Christian thing is all about, what Jesus really did. And he says, this is a theologically significant moment, and I want you to see why it's so significant. Now, let me tell you why it's significant. We're going to Bible geek out a little bit. Is that all right? Are we ready? Okay. So there's going to be a, a map up here on the screen. This is where this whole thing's taking place. Now, the bottom left is Jacob's well, so that's where he's meeting up. There's a church on it now, but there wasn't back then. Uh, And so that's Jacob's well, and it is sitting there in the middle of this city called Shechem, okay? This is all about a a mile square, a little more maybe. And on the left is Mount Gerizim. I want you to remember that. And then the right is Mount Ebal, okay, with Shechem. So we're right here in the vicinity of Shechem. Now, if you read your Old Testament, Shechem is a very significant place, when it comes to the Messiah. So let's, we're going to just go through it. Genesis 12. 
This is way back at the beginning, the calling of Abraham, the very beginning of the formation of the nation of Israel. And God comes to Abram, and he calls him, and he promises Abram that you're going to have a family, descendants, and you're going to have land, and that he says to them, to, to Abram, all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. This is one of the first real kind of indicators of a Messiah to come, someone that would come from the offspring of Abraham who would deliver all peoples, not just the nation of Israel, but all peoples, all right? So this is, this is a very important moment, okay? In the, in the calling of Abram and in the prediction of the Messiah. And so it says this in Genesis 12, 6 and 7. It says, Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. And so he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. So right there, here's little old Abraham all by himself. He doesn't have this big family yet. He has no idea how this is ever going to happen. He's in the middle of Canaanite land. It's not his land. It's Canaanite land. He's sitting in the middle of it. He has no idea how it's going to happen. But, and he believes the word of God that God is going to bring blessing through him, and he makes an altar right there in the middle of this whole thing. Okay, so that's the beginning. A couple generations later, we have Jacob. Okay, he's the grandson of Abraham. We have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He separates from his brother Esau, comes where? To Shechem, the same spot. The nation of Israel still didn't possess the land. They were still a smallish family, um, but they were growing, and this land was still in the Canaanites' possession. But Jacob knew the significance of this spot. And so this is what it says in Genesis 33. After Jacob came from Paddan Aram, he arrived safely in the city of what? Shechem in Canaan and camped within sight of the city. For a hundred pieces of silver he bought from the sons of Hamar, the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where he pitched his tent. There he set up an altar and called it El Elohe Israel, which means mighty is the God of Israel. So right here, again, in the middle of the Canaanite land, he somehow manages to buy land from Shechem himself, from the Shechem family, right? He buys land from them, and he sets himself there, and he sets up an altar again to the Lord, saying God is going to be mighty in this place, right here in Shechem. Tradition has it that at this point, he probably would have built his well. It doesn't talk about the well itself in Old Testament times, but the well uh, is referred to in the story in, uh, with the women at the well with Jesus. And so this is probably the point at which he would have dug a well because he had land now, and it was his land. He needed a well. He needed water. So this is, and in fact, interestingly, the Jacob's well is one of the few archaeological locations in the Mideast that is like absolutely certain where it is. Like, everybody agrees uh, where it is, so they know where this, this particular well is. Let's fast forward 500 more years, okay? So now the nation of Israel has grown. There was a famine. They end up in Egypt. Then they end up enslaved in Egypt. Then, remember, Moses comes, and they get delivered from Egypt, and there's the parting of the Red Sea, and then they're wandering in the wilderness. And then at the end of all that, finally, they are poised to go into the promised land to fulfill the promise of God. And Moses is commissioning Joshua to take them there. And this is what Moses says to Joshua in Deuteronomy 29, before they have gone to go conquer the land. Moses tells Joshua, and I'm going to just paraphrase it because it's a long passage, but basically he tells Joshua, once they've crossed the Jordan River into the promised land, he says, build an altar to the Lord on Mount Ebal. He was to have half the tribes in Israel stand on Mount Gerizim and half on Mount Ebal as they proclaimed the blessings and curses of the law of God handed down to Moses. Do you remember where those mountains are? Let's go back to the picture. Where's our picture? Should be the next slide. Mount Gerizim, Mount Ebal. 
tribes on one side, tribes on the other side, proclaiming the law and the goodness and the justice of God over what city? Shechem. <laughs> Again, the significance of, of God's work through this particular little place in the middle of Israel. And so uh, we see that they were proclaiming God's goodness over it. Finally, in Joshua 24, the land has been delivered over to the Israel. They have seen the fulfillment of the promise. And it describes Joshua calling an assembly of all the tribes of Israel after all the wars, all the fighting, all they've now all received the land. And Joshua calls all the tribes together for a celebration and to consecrate themselves to the Lord. Where do you suppose he called the tribes? What do you think? Shechem. <laughs> he called them all back to Shechem, and he made a speech about how God had been faithful, how he delivered them, how from times of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he had been faithful. He's fulfilling his promises. And then he made this famous statement that I know many of you probably have on your wall with a nice wall hanging. Joshua says, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away all the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. So again, proclaimed in Shechem, God is the Lord. He is going to fulfill every promise. And on that day, Joshua made a covenant to the people, for the people. And there at Shechem, he reaffirmed for them the decrees and the laws. And Joshua recorded all these things in the book of the law of God and took a large stone and set it up under the oak near the holy place of the Lord. So now, let's go back to Jesus. It's in this place, this incredible place that was centuries of promises and covenants and victories and consecration to the Lord and proclamation of God's goodness and his power. It's right here in the middle of Samaria to a little ordinary Samaritan woman at a well. Jesus goes. And what does he say to her? He says, I'm the Messiah. He hasn't said it to anyone else yet. She gets to hear it first, right here in Shechem in the middle. I love the way um, one of my books, Visual Guide to Gospel Events, puts it. It says, it was in this location, brimming with anticipation of fulfilling God's promises to Abram and Moses, that Jesus verbally proclaimed himself to be the Messiah. There was no coincidence that Jesus readily revealed his identity as Messiah to the Samaritan woman in the same location where God had previously established his promises to Abraham and Joshua. Thus, Jesus reminded the nation of Israel of those promises and others given to Moses. How cool is that? How cool is that? Shechem. Remember Shechem. Say Shechem. Okay, you're going to remember that. It's a place of promise. So that's where this is taking place. Very theologically significant that Jesus is showing up there. But then, of course, now times have changed, right? This is in Jesus' time, so it's not, no longer occupied by the nation of Israel. There's Romans there, there's, and now there's Samaritans there. So this is a, kind of a different culture, okay? And so when Jesus goes to Samaria, he's moving cross-culturally. We have to understand that, too. He takes the trip through Samaria to get to Galilee. I think I might have a picture of the map of that. I don't know if that's next thing. Yeah, so he has to go through Judea, from Judea up to Galilee, he's got to pass through Samaria. Now, you could go to the east around the river and stuff. Uh, sometimes people did because sometimes to go through Samaria was a little dangerous. There's, you know, not happy feelings between Samaritans and Jews. But this was the shortest path, so this is the way he went. Now, 
Why didn't they get along? What was the issue with the Jews and the Samaritans? And this is one more um, map. We're going to fast forward another 500 years or so. Um, And after the days of Israel and the judges and then the kings of David and Solomon, suddenly the, the, the nation of Israel splits in half. And there are two kingdoms now. There's the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, and the kingdom of Judah. So if you're reading through First and Second Kings and wonder why it keeps saying, the king of Judah, blah, 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 and the king of Israel, blah, 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 and the king of Judah, blah, 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 it's because there's two nations, okay? They've split by this time. And so you can see Israel's the top one, Judah's the bottom one. And what happens is a very large nation to the east, Assyria, comes in and conquers Israel. So I think that's on the next slide. They're coming in, and they conquer Israel and take over. And this is not a good thing. And this is what it says about it in 2 Kings. Uh, we read, uh, from starting from verse 23, it says, So the people of Israel were taken from their homeland into exile in Assyria and are still there. So they were taken out of that northern place and brought into Assyria. The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvim, and settled them in the towns of Samaria to replace the Israelites. So now that land is replaced by all these folks. They took over Samaria and lived in its towns. One of the priests who had been exiled from Samaria came to live in Bethel and taught them how to worship the Lord. Nevertheless, each national group made its own gods in the several towns where they settled. They worshiped the Lord, but they also served their own gods in accordance with the customs of the nations from which they had been brought. So you can begin to see why the devout Jews didn't like this, right? This was what they call syncretism, where, where the Samaritans took the, the God of Israel, worshipped him, but they also added to him all their other gods. They just kind of mushed it all together into one big happy thing that they tried to say, this we're serving, we're serving all the gods we can. And this syncretism, plus the fact that they intermarried also with these foreign lands, made the devout Jews, religious and devout Jews, to look at the Samaritans as half-breeds. They were half-breeds. They were tainted religiously, socially, and so they did not get along. They did not get along. I think it's fascinating to note that Jesus several times calls out the Samaritans and moves towards Samaritans, even though they were the hated people. And they weren't even serving God the right way. I mean, they, they were mixing it up with other religions, but Jesus is always moving toward them. And, you know, it's an interesting question to say, why why doesn't Jesus, when he's talking with her, start to, like, address the syncretism, right? Address that you shouldn't be serving these other gods, and it's all wrong, and, you know, you need to do this right. And why doesn't he make his view known? And why doesn't he speak out against it? And why doesn't he make sure he, they understand that they're all in the wrong? Why doesn't he do that? And I think that this is a really good question for us as Christians today. Because I think we tend to have a feeling as Christians that we need to make sure people know exactly what we think about all their choices, about all their moral decisions, about all their different things that they do, gods they worship and the way they worship and how they think. We, we kind of feel that it's our job to correct everyone, and if we don't, then they're going to think we condone what they do. And I'm so fascinated that Jesus isn't worried about any of that. When you look at the way Jesus deals with this woman, he, he addresses her. He addresses her, but mostly he loves her. He loves her just where she is, and he doesn't even really address her immorality and her issues. Let's go, let's look at it, what he does. And in fact, you could almost do a whole teaching on just this little section of his interaction with her on how we should be interacting with the non-believing world, with the syncretistic world that we're in that mixes all kinds of religions together. It's very interesting. Let's just watch what he does. The first thing he does is he asks for, for a drink. 
a good Jewish person would never have even touched something that a Samaritan person would have touched. So right there, he's crossing a boundary. He's saying, I don't care what you touch. I'm going to love you just the way you are. So he asks her for the drink. He asks for her help. Then, you know, he knows that she's living in sin, right? He, what does he say? You've had five husbands, and the one you're with right now isn't your husband. This is not a good thing. I mean, they, you know, we don't know how the husbands all died, but in Jewish culture, five husbands is too many. Like, <laughs> like you just stop after a couple and you go be, you know, pray in the temple or something. So this was a lot. This was not good. Um, and so he knows, knows all that. Does he dwell on it? He simply points it out, and it's like he lets the Holy Spirit just do the rest of the conviction. He does not have a, seem to have a need to point out this is wrong, you should change, you should move out of that house with, a hus- with that man that's not your husband. He doesn't say any of that. I find that fascinating. This is God we're talking about here. He doesn't. He just lays it out there, and then he points her to himself. And I just feel like that's a good rule of thumb for us that we do so much better in our interactions with people if rather than pointing out everything people are doing wrong, that we point them to Jesus. And let the Holy Spirit do that convicting work. This is what Jesus is appearing to do here, which is amazing. So now let's go on. He, f- he also has an issue of their, their, her following the other gods, right? He lets her dictate how far they're going to go, talking about all that, their faith differences. She's the one who brings it up, actually, if you notice. In verse 19, she says... She's almost like picking a fight. I love this, actually. Um, She says, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that we must worship in Jerusalem. I I get this feeling like she's like, finally, a Jewish person's talking to me. I'm going to ask him all my questions, you know? (laughs) Like, why won't you guys let us worship where we want to worship? She's finally getting this opportunity. She's almost picking a fight with him, and he speaks to her, and he does speak truth to her, but so gently. He speaks to her and about true worship. He says, um, because he knows that, yes, they're worshiping other gods. They shouldn't be doing that. That's not right. And so he says, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. You're not doing it right. But then he speaks to how both the Jews and the Samaritans have it just a little bit wrong. He says this, yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, neither in Jerusalem or in Samaria. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him, must worship in the spirit and in truth. He's showing her worship is not about a place. It's not about a particular country or place or location. It's about worshiping in spirit and truth. And then, of course, she adds this kind of leading question, right? It's almost like she knows what the answer is going to be. She says, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. And that's when he says to her, I am he this incredible revelation. We must not ignore how incredibly significant it is that he lays out this incredibly bold truth to this sinful, rejected, unclean woman in this, at this little well in Samaria. It is astounding. He is showing us powerfully here how to love people, how to love people who are different than we are, how to, how to keep pointing them to himself and not getting caught up in side issues, but just love them. And when they come and they encounter Jesus, he starts to do a work in her life. And, of course, now she goes around, right, and tells everyone about what has happened, and they all come to him. So I love that. I love that, uh, that he is really moving cross-culturally here, and he's showing us a way for us to move cross-culturally, cross-religiously, and he's showing us this incredible way. Now, the last thing he does in going to Samaria is Jesus interacts with, gasp, 
a woman, a woman. For a man, a Jewish man of that period to spend much time talking to any woman was not really uh, looked well upon, and particularly a Samaritan woman, and yet he honors her by talking with her, treating her as as an individual, as an as a important person. And um, if you've read this passage before and you've had teachings on it, I'm sure they have pointed out to you that it's interesting that she was drawing water at noon, the hottest time of the day. That's not when most of the women would draw their water. They would have drawn it you know, early morning or later when it was cooler. So what most people surmise from this is that she was pretty rejected by the woman of Samaria. They might have been Samaritans, but they've got standards, you know what I'm saying? And she didn't meet the standards. And so she's the one, you know, she was kind of a pariah with all her husbands and whoever she was living with, all that stuff. The women of that town probably didn't want to interact with her. So this is how she's viewed and among her own people, and let alone by a Jewish person. Um, and so it's very amazing that to this Samaritan, this unclean person, Jesus comes, and it's the surprise of his disciples. It's to her surprise as well. She's amazed that he's even asking her for water, but he doesn't ostracize her. He doesn't embarrass her. He doesn't judge her for her past. He just speaks truth to her and tells her who he is. So Jesus transcended time, place, people, and culture. And so should we. We are being given a, a model to follow, to how we can transcend. And I want to just talk about this last little passage. Um, we're going to skip one slide here, just so you know. All of this shows that he transcends time and place and people and culture. And I want to go to John 4, verse 39 to 42. We often miss this little end of the passage. It says, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. So she'd gone out and said, he told me everything I ever did. And so when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. It's easy to overlook that the Samaritans urged them to stay for two days, and they did. This is astonishing. A strict Jew is not supposed to touch anything a Samaritan touches, not supposed to eat their food, certainly not be in their house, use their outhouses, whatever. And here they are, these disciples with Jesus are staying in Samaria, eating their food, enjoying their hospitality, sleeping in their beds. It's astounding. And I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall with the disciples. Because, <laughs> you know, Jesus was always about five steps ahead of the disciples. And I would have loved to have heard them be like, okay, it's bad enough he's making us go through Samaria. And then bad enough we got to talk to this woman at the well. Now we're having a sleepover? Like, what? <laughs> I mean, what are we doing here? But they did it. And I just wonder how uncomfortable that was for them. That was a real cross-cultural move for them and probably very uncomfortable. They would have never done anything before like this in their lives. There were, there were habits there and, and ways they, probably the foods they ate and the way they served it, and everything about their life would have been different than what these Jewish disciples would have been used to, and yet they did it. They stayed there for two days. We're being shown here how Jesus and his disciples were being stretched. We're willing to be uncomfortable in order to love the people of Samaria and bring Jesus to them. And I just want us to realize today that he's calling us to be stretched. That it's not just for them. 
It's for us sitting here in Greensboro, North Carolina, that he is calling us to be stretched, even be uncomfortable if we're going to welcome all, if we're going to be like Jesus, especially if we want to welcome the marginalized and the oppressed and, and those who've been on the periphery, especially then. And, you know, I to some extent felt this as that one very, one of very few white people in a conference that was designed for black and brown people. I definitely felt that as a minority there. There was, you know, music and, and, and food and cultural references and jokes they told that I didn't get because <laughs> it's not my culture. And I didn't grow up in the same spaces that these folks grew up in. And it wasn't always comfortable, to be quite honest. But part of my listening, my learning process was to be a listener. One of the things I promised myself was that I was not allowed to ask any questions of the speakers. They always had Q&A and stuff. And if you know me, I always got a question. I mean, I, you know, they say, you got a question? I'm like, yeah, I got a question. Because I always want to ask questions, but I thought, you know what? I'm not going to take up that speaker's time on my question because this conference isn't for me. It's for all these other folks here. And so I kept my mouth shut. You'd be very proud of me. <laughs> uh, and I just listened. And I just listened. But I also listened very hard for the moments in which there was an amen. As a speaker, I know when, you know, you know, you know when you've hit a chord, there's a little rustle through the room, you know, and amen. And, right, you hear that and you feel that when you've hit it. And so I was listening for that. And it was so interesting to me that the places where that group was saying amen were not necessarily the places that were resounding for me. Again, just a reminder that we are coming from a different cultural place, and that's good, it's beautiful, and I need to learn what that looks like and feels like. And one of the, one of the cultural things that, or one of the places where there was a lot of amens that was a, maybe a tiny bit of a surprise to me was when the speaker would say something about how hard and how tiring it can be to be a non-white person in a mostly white space and that the vineyard is a mostly white space. And to be honest, that kind of came as a surprise to me. It probably doesn't come as a surprise to some of you in the room, but it came as a surprise to me because I never think about it. And truly, if you ha we have some diversity, which is wonderful, but truly, it's a mostly white space, and most vineyard churches are that way. And it wasn't a critique. These folks love the vineyard. They wouldn't be there. They have other choices. They wouldn't be there if they didn't love the vineyard and love its movement and, the, and its message and its, its distinctives, but they... they still recognize that it's still an effort to move and live and worship constantly cross-culturally. And there was an amen to that. And so people were saying things like, you know, you don't know how tired you are until you're refreshed. And the, the group felt refreshed just to be together and just to be able to relax that a little bit, to not be cross-cultural. I was cross-cultural, but they, they weren't cross-cultural in that moment. Another person said, this conference scratched an itch I didn't know I had. So I just thought how beautiful that is, and what it emphasized to me is how incredibly important things like our diversity committee are, that we are trying to, attempting to make Gate City Vineyard a place where everyone feels welcome when they walk in the door. That there's a little bit of every culture here. Yes, of course, we are a, a more dominant white culture right now here in the Gate City Vineyard. It might not always be that way. But, but that there's something for everything. There's touch points for every culture here, whether it's in the worship or in the teaching or the kind of ministry we do and the outreach and the, and the social things we do, that there's touch points for everyone so people can walk in no matter where they're coming from, who they are, the color of their skin, their gender, whatever, and they say, this is home. 
This is what we're shooting for. This is what we mean. This is not peripheral to what we do as Gate City Vineyard. This is central. It's part of our distinctive when we say, I want to be welcoming. We want to be a place of welcome for everyone, regardless of culture and ethnicity and gender and disability, whatever. So this is what we're trying to do here at Gate City Vineyard. And I hope that you're excited about that with me because I am. Um, and you know what? There's going to be times when it might be uncomfortable, just like it was probably uncomfortable for those disciples to go with Jesus and spend the night in Samaria, spend a couple nights there. I loved, um, Joy and I were talking about it a little bit um, a day or two ago, and she said uh, to me, you know, we have to remember that every culture is part of God's kingdom. And she said, just imagine how much further along we'd be if we helped each other or even asked for help from others that are different from us, just like Jesus asked for help from that Samaritan woman. How much we could learn from each other in seeing each other's assets and abilities. We want to reflect the kingdom of God as it is on earth. Amen? Amen. Go ahead and clap. This is what we want to be. And so we're moving intentionally into all that. I just wanted the the diversity committee to know that we're behind you, the leadership's behind you. Um, we want to we want to move forward in this way. Um, press in, do the hard work. Let's have the discussions. Let's figure out what that looks like for us in our particular space here at Gate City Vineyard. So, what do we see from this account of Gate City of, of this of the woman at the well? What do we see in this John four? We see a few things. We see that Jesus went into a different cultural space that had great theological significance. I think that's important to know. We see that he engaged with someone cross-culturally and cross-gender, breaking social norms. We see that he privileged this person, this lowly person, outskirts person, with information he hadn't shared anywhere else, that he was the Messiah. And then he ministered to her heart without judgment. He showed her that he saw her. At the end of the day, if I look at this passage, what I really see is that Jesus saw her as she was. And he sees you and I the way we are. He sees our our culture and our background, the color of our skin, our gender. He also sees our hopes and our dreams. He sees our failures. He sees our successes. He sees all of that. And he saw that in her. And he called her to himself, to that refreshing water. And it was interesting. I read somewhere that um, they said, you know, I wonder if John deliberately set this one up against Nicodemus, which was in John 3. If you were here last week and George talked about Nicodemus and the discussion about being born again, Nic- they couldn't be more different, Nicodemus and this woman, right? Nicodemus is like a highbrow guy, right? He's educated, he's in Jewish leadership, he's, he's, he's a man, he's Jewish, all that, and she is like this despised woman from Samaria, and she's a woman, and she's not even married, all that, and yet, so they couldn't be more different, and yet both of them needed Jesus, And both of them, he was able to minister so effectively and so beautifully. And so he ministered to her heart and to her soul and her identity. And I'll tell you one last little thing here. that Charles and I had a discussion about this this passage. And he was pointing out to me in verse 29 how she says to the townspeople, Jesus told me everything I ever did. And he said, and I I resonated with this, like it's kind of an odd thing for her to say. Because all we have in here is that he talked about her husbands. Now, maybe they had a longer conversation and he really did tell her everything she ever did. (laughs) But more likely, what he said about her and her husbands and living with the one that is what she thought of as her identity. Her identity was in all the failed marriages and in the one that she's still making bad choices (laughs) about men. 
and that that's where her identity was. And I just believe that Jesus was speaking to her identity. And maybe some of us feel this way this morning, that, that, that our failures are our identity. That the things we've done wrong are our identity. Maybe we feel that we're always on the margins and not really worth Jesus' time. Maybe we feel because of, it's our, because of our culture or our upbringing or our choices or our training or whatever, that we're somehow less than, that Jesus doesn't see us and want to see us. And I just want you to know this morning, he does. He does see you exactly as you are. I want to ask the band if they would just start to come up because Jesus loves all of us on the periphery, all of us who think we don't quite have it all together, wherever we come from, whoever we are. He sees you. He knows all about you. And it's so interesting that I had the same verse at the end of my sermon that was read this morning. <laughs> come all you are thirsty. Come to the waters that, you, that your soul may live. Jesus said, I'm a spring of life welling up to eternal, spring of water welling up to eternal life. He is here. And he wants to well up in your soul today, just like he did for the woman at the well. He's not judging you. He's not calling you out. He's just saying, come to me. And we're going to work on all that stuff together. Let's just pray. Lord Jesus, I just thank you that um, this is such a rich passage with so much in it, Lord. And I just pray that in all that I just laid down for everyone here today, that each one of us would be able to see what you're telling us personally. It may be that we are meant to step out in some way, like Jesus did, in a way that maybe makes us uncomfortable. Maybe we need to step out cross-culturally or cross-socially. Maybe there's a way we need to love some people that are different from us so that they can see Jesus. But I also think there's some of us today who just feel like our identity is like this woman. It's just in this one problem I have. And I just sense today that God wants to set us free. That he loves us. That he sees you just as you are. He sees all the mess-ups, all the problems. And he loves you and he's just calling you to come to him. He sees you. So as we sing this song, I want you to just, you, you're welcome to sing it. You may not know it. I think it's a newer song. So if you don't know it, I would encourage you just to sit and to listen and let the Lord minister to your heart, to your identity, that you're his child. You're not the sum total of your failures and your background, but you are his child. Feel free to come up for prayer. Our prayer teams will be at the tables during the song. And let's just invite Jesus into our life.